Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. Today's episode is season one finale of Talking PFAS, and I'll be bringing you a discussion with United Australia Party New South Wales Senator Brian Burston. But they seem to duck for cover when things like this are raised that perhaps are going to cost quite a a deal of money, but I don't see that as an excuse. We have to remediate, we have to buy back properties from innocent victims that are not responsible for this particular uh, circumstance. You'll also hear a little bit from former New South Wales Green Senator Leary Yannon, and you'll hear some more information from the recent PFAS Summit in Sydney. And this episode featuring Senator Brian Burston was recorded in early October. How are you today, Brian? I'm very well, thank you. Brian, would you be able to fill us in a little bit on your background when you became aware of the issue and take us through the history of it? I became aware of PFAS back in early 2016 during the election campaign. My twin brother contested the seat of Patterson. Uh, William Town is in the heart of that electorate. And did you find out, like everybody else did in that area, through the media, or did you find out some other way? No, we were contacted by a community group that rang my brother when they found out he was a candidate, and uh, we went over to a couple of uh, meetings in uh, Saltash where they introduced us to all the affected, or a lot of the affected um, residents, and uh, that's when we became aware of the real concerns of the residents in Saltash and in the surrounding area. Do you remember how many affected residents there were at that time? Because I know the number has grown a few times. Uh, There were about 265 residents at the time, including a public school, so it was a significant number, but that's uh, increased significantly now. And what public school was that? Yeah, that was a Saltash uh, public school, I believe, and um, a lot of young children there. Very difficult to control uh, children and and stopping them from playing in the mud and and so on, so it was a, a real concern. I did call the Saltash Public School and I was unable to get a comment from the principal, but a fact sheet does confirm that PFAS was detected at the school in a bore. The school has now been connected to town water and there has been some recent controversy in the area over who should pay the bill. A media contact from the New South Wales Department of Education has confirmed that $6,000 that has been paid for water so far by the school will be reimbursed, but as from next year, the school will be required to pay the bill. But it's now 2018. How many families that I understand is 750 people? Yeah, it's 700 uh, residents in actual fact, so it's probably double that number in, in terms of people. But um, I think November 15th in 2007, they expanded the red zone by about 50%, which captured a lot more of the resident numbers uh, in Saltash and, and surrounding areas. So it's a major concern. I think that area is going to grow further as the contamination spreads with the groundwater. You've got to remember that the groundwater in Williamtown is only about a metre under the the surface and that's where a lot of the difficulty arises when it rains in that area the groundwater elevates to the surface and you see all the foam starting to develop in drains and so on that's because of the contamination the PFAS contamination it's, it's a real concern. You can see that foam? Oh yes physically physically evident when there's heavy rain that comes to the surface and uh, there are photographs I've, I've seen I've been over there when it has rained and you can see the foam 
rising to the surface. Let's go back to 2016, you became aware, and at that time, you were in which political party? Uh, Pauline Hanson's One Nation. What was the response from the Pauline Hanson One Nation Party to the PFAS issue? It was um, one of concern. Our leader at the time, Pauline Hanson, gave me the charter to pursue the uh, issue of the contamination, and I've tried to do my best before and since I was elected to bring to the attention of the government and the opposition and the Greens that we have a major concern. We all have to be bipartisan in our approach to this issue and try and get some um, satisfactory resolution for the residents, whether it be buybacks or uh, compensation in some way. Would you be able to give me a quick summary of your political movements from Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party to Clive Palmer's United Australia Party? How did that journey come about? Well, we made a deal. When I say we, I mean Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party, which um, was made up of three senators at the time, myself, Senator Pauline Hanson and Senator Peter Georgia from WA. We came up with a, um, a very, very good deal to support the company tax cuts. Later on down the track, Pauline Hanson saw fit to backflip on that particular deal. I read about that decision in The Australian on the front page uh, in the newspaper and took me by surprise, but I told Pauline Hanson I will not be changing my position. I made a handshake deal with Matisse Corman and I was always raised that once you make a handshake deal on anything, irrespective of what it is, then you stick by it and that's what I've done, which ultimately uh, led to my resignation from the party. Fortunately, after that, um, I met with Clive Palmer. I was in Townsville on another matter in Queensland, and I was asked if I would like to meet with uh, Mr Palmer, and I said, yes, it can't do any harm. I did so. I met with him over an hour. He told me about his vision for Australia, make Australia great is the slogan, as you know, and the rest is history. I decided to join up with uh, Clive and his party on the condition that he rename it United Australia Party and remove his name from it because I don't believe in personality parties and uh, I think that's a good move and I think it's been well received by the public. Have you had a discussion with Clive about PFAS and what did he have to say about PFAS? Uh, Not a direct conversation with him. I haven't been in the party for for long. We've been discussing other policies, of course, but he is aware that it's one of my um, issues that I'm passionate about and very concerned about people's health, not only in Williamtown locally in New South Wales, but uh, right throughout Australia. I think Williamtown, I raised that issue in my maiden speech in September 2016 which gained a, a, some traction in the media, with uh, particularly Alan Jones on 2GB. And uh, from there it's grown and it's been disclosed and discovered that there are many, many, upwards of 70 sites around Australia with uh, PFAS contamination. So I believe it's going to be a, um, an issue that's not going to go away and must be treated with the utmost urgency by government. Over 90 sites named by the Sydney Morning Herald. Carrie Fellner's wonderful investigative journalism that started in Newcastle. They're not all defence sites. Yeah, that's uh, correct. Well, 90 now, so it's growing as we speak. And I think that's not going to be the end number either. Well, I was just at the Eco Forum conference, which I will be reporting on in a future episode, and Defence released some numbers there. They're investigating an area that's half the size of the ACT. 1,352 square kilometres. Wow. Not surprised. Steve Grzkowiak is the Deputy Secretary of Estate and Infrastructure for the Department of Defence. He shared the scope of the PFAS investigation that Defence is leading in Australia at the PFAS Summit held in Sydney in October. Um, We're running what we say is probably one of the largest 
environmental investigations that's ever happened in Australia. I've got no actual idea whether it is the largest or not. It might be. But we've got uh, active investigations at 25-odd sites where those orange dots on the map are. We're investigating uh, territory that's about half the size of the Australian Capital Territory. It's quite a lot of land. And we're not just roaming around it with a rucksack looking for you know, things. We're drilling holes and taking detailed samples, close to 40,000 individual samples. Interestingly, each one of those costs $700 to analyse. So um, we're spending quite a lot of money on this process as well. Andrew Mitchell works for RPS. He used to work for the EPA for 14 years before he started work with Defence on PFAS. He also shared at the PFAS Summit in Sydney, and he says if you have a PFAS problem on a site, you most likely have a PFAS problem in the surrounding community. I think we all know about PFAS, but if you're in the elevator with your boss and saying, what are you working on PFAS, what does that mean? And you've got 10 seconds to tell them, what is it? What I would say, the take-home message is, is it's got legs. It moves like nothing else. It really gets out. So if you have a PFAS problem on a site, you more than likely have a PFAS problem in that community. And it's different to any other contaminant that I'm aware of in that regard. It's a contamination that does spread through water, does uh, travel, as it's uh, evidence in Williamtown. The red zone, as they call it in Williamtown itself, has grown by more than 50% since um, PFAS was first uh, made public. So that doesn't surprise me. Would you give me a bit of your timeline of both your efforts as a senator working on PFAS and what you have witnessed in relation to PFAS in the Senate? Well, my timeline, as I mentioned earlier, I first um, referred to PFAS as a, an issue in my first speech as a senator in September 2016. I did tackle the issue and spoke to constituents um, prior to the election, before I was elected, with my twin brother, who was a uh, candidate for uh, Patterson and polled very, very strongly. What's uh, his name? Graham Burston. He's uh, still very, very concerned about PFAS. He um, will be active in our party, United Australia Party, in our efforts to help clean up the sites around Australia. But I've witnessed many speeches by the Labor Party, both uh, representatives from the Northern Territory, Western Australia, and um, Merrill Swanson, of course, uh, here in uh, the local area. But it's all rhetoric in terms of the Labor Party because they have no set policy. They certainly may well be the next government of Australia. I'm asking them to come up with a policy that people can look at, we can cost it, and then see how serious they are about cleaning up this particular issue. I would suggest they won't come up with a policy. On the 6th of December 2017, Senator Lee Rhiannon uh, moved an amendment to General Business Notice of Motion 653 that certain changes to that motion be made so that the Labor Party would support it, otherwise they'd be voting against it. There's some words crossed out there. Who would have crossed the words out? The Labor Party requested that the Greens cross out the words investigate financial arrangements for affected properties adjacent to RAF Williamtown. In other words, remove the financial implications of this particular motion. Labor requested that. Labor requested for their support uh, and it was replaced with, explain, by 5 February 2018, what consideration has been given to understanding and addressing any financial impacts on affected businesses and individuals. In other words, what have you considered in terms of the financial impacts but no commitment to doing something about it? That's basically what it is. Who had to explain by 5th of February 
Oh, that was uh, calls on the federal government to explain if they have considered the uh, financial impacts on affected businesses and, and individuals. And what was the response, Brian? I'm not sure whether they got a response back yet, but this motion calls on the government to respond, and they should respond within 30 days. I'll uh, check to see what the response uh, was, if indeed there's uh, been one. So would you like to talk about the motion that you moved in the Senate recently, in, well, in August? Well, I moved a motion in August that the government implement a buyback scheme for PFAS uh, contaminated sites, particularly in Williamtown, and it was uh, voted down by the... Labor Party and the government. Darren Hintz was a Crossbeats member that also voted against it, uh, which was very, very disappointing. Now, in light of developments uh, this year in the USA where the state of Minnesota settled a lawsuit suit with 3M for $850 million, I wrote to the New South Wales government also, the Premier, asking if she would consider suing 3M uh, in a similar um, way to uh, compensate victims in uh, Williamtown particularly and I haven't yet received a reply. I'll have to chase that up but they seem to duck for cover when things like this uh, are raised that perhaps are going to cost quite a, a deal of money but I don't see that as an excuse. We have to remediate, we have to buy back properties from innocent victims that are not responsible for this particular uh, circumstance. I did talk with Meryl Swanson about that motion that you raised because I said she's working hard on the ground and so is Kate Washington from Labor, but yet their own party is not supporting buybacks. They It was 17 Liberals and 17 Labors that voted no, as I understand it, correct? That's, that's correct. 17 from both parties voted against the buyback. Merrill said that particular motion was an unfortunate motion that Brian didn't seek to with us to word it in a way that we could have supported. What do you have to say about that? Well, I don't word motions to suit a particular political party because they want me to uh, word something where it doesn't have a financial impact on the budget. That's not what it's about. We want to compensate people in the right manner and appropriately. Not everyone will want to move from the area. They might just want to remediate their property. But I'm certainly disappointed with the wording that she uh, described as an unfortunate motion. Well, I think it's a motion that should have been supported. I don't change motions to suit particular political parties. I put motions forward in the best interests of the community and those people affected. When I met with Meryl and we discussed the motion, she described it as an unfortunate stunt that she said you're well-meaning, but it was an unfortunate stunt. Do you think by that she means that you wanted to call a division so that you could get the votes on the Hansard record? I'm not involved in stunts. If I have to jump up on the top of a tree and yell and scream to get a PFAS resolution, then I'll do that. If you want to call that a stunt, fine. Yes, I call a division. It was designed to have names placed on record through Hansard. Uh, so that the people can go to Hansard, have a look at those who support or otherwise the decontamination, the remediation of sites and buybacks. Now, Did your motion include decontamination and remediation? It implied it, essentially buybacks. Um, the Labor Party wanted me to change it and soften the, uh, the wording, which I refused to do, and that's one of the reasons they didn't support it. But uh, it certainly wasn't a stunt. I'm not involved in stunts as far as issues like this are concerned. If they want to describe it as that, I'll wear the badge proudly. The more stunts I can pull in that regard, I will, if uh, that's what they want to describe it as. Why do you think she did describe it as a stunt? I'm in a position where I've got a free speech. I'm not uh, tied to a political party. Uh, they have no freedom of speech within major political parties. They tow the party line if it's to 
to the detriment of the community, then so be it as far as their party's concerned. Because they can't vote against the party line, if Labor is to vote no, they have to vote with them. Well, if they vote against their party line, they're, um, they're either expelled from the party or they don't win pre-selection and they're in it for a career, not in it for one term. So that's the disappointing aspect of it. It goes both ways. It goes for the government as well. I'll criticise those who play that game. I'll give um, bouquets to the Greens party. They are very, very strongly in favour of what I'm trying to do and I'm very strongly in favour and support of what they're trying to do in terms of PFAS is concerned. I did speak to some residents after your motion because they raised it with me and there was a lot of anger about the fact that Labor did vote against it and a lot of confusion from they expressed to me their complete disbelief actually that Labor had voted against it when they've got good members on the ground. Um, Well, Meryl Swanson's a new member of um, Parliament, new Labor member up there. When Bob Baldwin resigned, she, uh, and with the redistribution of the boundaries, she had a very good shot at winning. She had got a 10% margin. I'd say it's a very safe Labor seat now. That may have something to do with it. Uh, If she does nothing, it really won't impact on her vote. Well, I think she may be in for a surprise in the next uh, election because I think anger will be shown through the ballot box and uh, I suggest if uh, she wants to be re-elected that she be more forceful in presenting her case to uh, her own opposition and possibly future government. You can hear my full interview with Meryl Swanson and the discussion we had about Brian Burston's motion in episode 7 of Talking PFAS. When I did talk with Meryl she also said that you can't put up motions in the Senate that involve supply or money. So in that way, it was an illegitimate motion. What do you say about that? I'd suggest it's not an illegitimate motion. Um, We certainly cannot put money bills forward. That would ultimately become legislation from the Senate. But we can certainly put up motions that um, may have an impact in the financial sense. So was it an illegitimate motion? No, it's not an illegitimate motion. If that was the case, it would have been thrown out before it even went onto the business paper. These are vetted by the clerk of the Senate and the Parliamentary Council. Uh, And if they are uh, inappropriate, we are told so. I've had a couple that have been inappropriate that did involve money bills. The motion itself is a motion in support of a particular issue. If ultimately it's going to involve costs, financial uh, liability to the government, then it's up to the lower house to then uh, draw up a bill on that particular issue and have it voted on in the lower house and then it's uh, voted on in the upper house in support or otherwise. But a motion is not a bill as such. It is just a statement of support or otherwise for a particular issue. So it's not illegitimate? No, not illegitimate at all. If it was, it would would have been thrown out before it um, was even considered. And then she talks about when you were with the One Nation Party, I just want to give you a right to respond, that you had some bargaining potential with Matthias Cormann, but you unfortunately didn't exercise that power when you had the opportunity, and she calls it very disappointing. What do you say about that? Oh, she can call it what she likes, but certainly when I was with One Nation, we came up with a substantial package that we negotiated in support for the company tax cuts deal. PFAS was part of that negotiated deal. Then when Hanson flipped on the company tax cuts, everything went down the drain, including the negotiated area of PFAS. Now, Matthias Corman, when that happened, he said, as a show of good faith, Brian, I'm going to include this in the budget. He included something like 80-odd million dollars, 55 million for remediation work and 35 million for research and, and, and so on. Was that your doing? That was my doing. 
and I've spoken to Matthias Corman since and um, others. I've had uh, extensive briefings with Defence, keeping me aware of what's going on in terms of remediation experiments, and it is uh, significant. It's costing a lot of money. I'm happy with the progress they're making in that regard, but I'm certainly not happy with their rejection of buybacks. In your discussions with Defence, have they given you any indication of whether they've got enough money to handle this huge environmental investigation? Uh, I met with a large group of defence and uh, ministerial staff uh, advisers, uh, arranged by Matthias Corman, must say, very kindly uh, arranged the meeting, and I put that question to them, how's the money holding out? One of the defence personnel told me that um, it is uh, running out, it's very expensive, and uh, he did indicate there is more money in the kitty if they need it. So they've got some in reserve in their own defence budget, and he indicated to me that they would use it if necessary. But I'm still talking with um, the government as an independent individual senator. I understand that on the 13th of September you had a meeting with the Finance Minister Matthias Cormann and our new Prime Minister Scott Morrison and PFAS was part of that discussion. Could you give me a little bit of detail of the PFAS discussion? I can. It was just a, a very brief uh, conversation. We had a meeting for about half an hour with Matisse Corman, myself, my staff and the Prime Minister's staff uh, present. We Prime Minister was there? Uh, Prime Minister was certainly there. I've known uh, Prime Minister Morrison for, for some time, for several years, inside and outside of Parliament. He uh, was very kind enough to give me an audience. Uh, I was the first crossbench member to meet with the Prime Minister on any issue. We discussed PFAS, we discussed uh, Newcastle Port and several, and the Liddell Power Station, of which I was a construction boilermaker back in uh, 1970, showing my age now. He was impressed with what I had to say, and uh, we'll have further discussions down the track. I will be meeting with the new Treasurer as well in the near future on several issues that were raised during that meeting. I know the residents listening are desperate to know what Scott Morrison knew Prime Minister Scott Morrison thinks about PFAS and I'm just wondering did he say anything that you could let our listeners know about his concerns about the issue or or non-concerns about the issue? He made no commitments I'll admit I wasn't there to um, draw him into uh, committing to anything I just wanted to um, present my concerns on several issues which which included PFAS and he's very well aware of that and that gives us or me a further opening to uh, discuss further with the Prime Minister and other ministers uh, under the uh, responsibility of finance and defence and so on. So no commitments, but was there any empathy? Oh, plenty of empathy. I can appreciate where the government's coming from. This issue of buybacks can uh, and will probably run into hundreds of billions of dollars. It's just something that's got to be uh, progress, well not slowly, as quickly as possible obviously, but it's going to be a slow process. Uh, But uh, Prime Minister uh, Morrison is very, very aware of it. I'm going to try and talk to the opposition leader, Bill Shorten, as soon as I can on the same issue and see if we can get some commitment out of him, given that he's potentially our next Prime Minister. Yeah, that would be very good. People want to know what he has to say, uh, Bill Shorten has to say about that. As I said before, Defence said at the Eco Forum publicly that they believe this is the biggest environmental investigation that they are running. Now, that's only for their part of it, their portion. And I don't believe, and other people don't believe, the government is taking the non-defence sites seriously. What do you have to say about that? I don't think anyone's taking it as seriously as the residents want them to. I think there's a lot of buck passing between the EPA, the New South Wales government, the federal government and so on. So I think they've got to come together as a bipartisan group, including 
political parties right across the spectrum, irrespective of where they come from, and deal with this appropriately. It's really getting very, very frustrating. Do you think it's an apolitical issue that it, that it really should be treated like a natural disaster, even though it's of man's making? Oh, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I was very disappointed Leary Annan resigned from the Senate. She was a very, very strong advocate through the Greens Party for um, PFAS contamination, being a New South Wales uh, senator. We were working very, very well you know, along bipartisan lines, and that demonstrates how keen she was to have this issue resolved. Being a Green senator, being a One Nation senator at the time, diametrically opposed politically, but we could see the benefits of a bipartisan approach to PFAS, and I think that's what uh, should be happening. Here is just a little bit of what the former New South Wales Green Senator, Lee Rhiannon, had to say about PFAS contamination and the need for compensation. And this conversation with the former New South Wales Green Senator, Lee Rhiannon, was recorded in August 2018. And the essence of my concern, and I know of many others, is that here we have a government, and I'm referring there to successive coalition and Labor governments have been responsible, totally responsible for this contamination, for for the water being poisoned, for the people being unable to eat their local produce. But they won't do anything about it in terms of providing compensation or buying out people's property. Right now, it appears that the government is not moving on doing the right thing, on buying out contaminated property and providing the necessary compensation where people have lost their livelihoods or their livelihoods have been reduced. That's very serious. We've, as the Greens and the local community, have tried very hard, asking questions, putting motions in Parliament, having inquiries. We're now looking to shifting our tactics onto Labor. Labor could form the next government. And Labor and some of their local MPs have spoken out about their concerns and they've spoken with the community. But we're looking now to put the spotlight onto Labor. Labor need to say up front, as they could form the next government, what they will do for these communities. And surely Labor should commit to the buyouts. What they're asking for in terms of getting their property bought out by the government is totally reasonable. You know, we know the property is valuable. These are people's homes. It's their future. Many of them are in retirement age there, like young families building a life in this area. They've now got their stranded assets, as they say, but let's understand what that means. They have no value in their property. Just before this episode was published, I received an email from Senator Brian Burston's office advising me that on December 4, Senator Brian Burston, on behalf of the United Australia Party, moved a motion in the Senate calling on the Labor Party to announce their position regarding buybacks before Christmas. You might remember in the preview episode a resident's desperate plea to have this PFAS matter resolved by Christmas. And this is why Senator Burston chose that date. I'll just play that for you now. There are people in this community who cannot afford to wait another three years living under a cloud of doubt. There are people in this community who cannot afford to lose another sleepless night worrying if they have made their kids sick. There are people in this community who cannot afford to hold off just a little bit longer hoping that defence will do the right thing. And there are people in this community who cannot afford to keep paying a mortgage on a home that is not fit for purpose that is worth nothing because our leaders in government could not come together to get things done. Those are the stories we carry day to day. The father in Williamtown who walks the halls when his wife sleeps, knowing his bank does not recognise any value in their property. The mother who sits in the corner alone, fearful that the very milk which fed her newborn son has poisoned him. 
The retirees' life savings have been reduced to nothing. The family, trapped in a worthless home, whose doctor has specifically told them to leave the area to protect their children. The community group, who have been forced into suing its very own government, when that same government has openly admitted to harming its people. These are the stories our family has experienced, our family has witnessed. Please don't let the sun set on a fourth Christmas living this nightmare. This latest motion by Senator Brian Burston had the full support of the crossbench parties, but it was opposed by Labor and the government. So back to community trust, because the community trust of government is at an all-time low, and even the general manager of the Port Stephens Council talks about how the community don't trust any level of government, federal, state or local. It's quite a sad situation when we see that happening in a whole community. I think the community at large is being ignored by the major parties and the Greens to a certain extent and people are just frustrated and the only way they can vent their frustration is through the ballot box and I'm sure that's what they're going to do. Except when it comes to PFAS, the residents are saying who is going to take this matter seriously and one stop the contamination, do the buybacks, give them, give them choices to leave and, and remediate their land. I went to the university last week and spoke to a couple of researchers over there. Would that be Brett Turner? Yep, the hemp. Fantastic. So you met with Dr Brett Turner to discuss his hemp powder solution. I, yes, I did. It was a very good presentation. I was astounded when I saw um, the diagram of uh, the hemp plant at the bottom of his um, mm. opening page. It's uh, extraordinary how they've thought outside the square. But more concerning is that they put in a, a bid for uh, a round of funding to the Australian Research Council and did not get a dime. It's mind-boggling. And, and it's a natural solution. It's not another chemical for a chemical. Well, they can just simply um, have hemp plantations out in the paddock and the roots and so on will um, help uh, decontaminate the site. So what did you think of the result? Oh, extraordinary. The almost 100% decontamination of the, the samples, but uh, very disappointing that the um, council did not give them funding. I've made an assurance to them that I will approach Matisse Corman and seek to get a meeting with the appropriate minister, I think it's uh, Tian, and also Frydenberg, the treasurer, and see if we can get some money for these guys. I think Matisse Corman will be very receptive to that. I've done very well with Senator Corman, and he's very, very keen to help um, wherever he can. You can hear my full interview with Dr Brett Turner from Newcastle University in Episode 6 of Talking PFAS, where we discuss his method for removing PFAS from groundwater using hemp seed powder and also how hemp might be used to remediate soil in the future. Amazing team working on this. It'll be a shame to see it stop. Well, I did go through the lab and it was very impressive. This funding uh, also helps fund the salaries of those who are doing this research, so it's very critical to retain them on this um, type of project. I'm I'm confident I can um, persuade the government to have uh, this particular project funded for a few years. And I'll certainly be following up with Senator Brian Burston to find out how he gets on with trying to get funding to support the researchers at the Newcastle University and their hemp seed powder solution for PFAS removal. How are you going to help push the major parties to develop a PFAS policy? I think we've just got to get more numbers in Parliament. We're about to spend a very, very considerable amount of money on um, on the campaign. You'll probably notice advertisements already hitting television and, and radio 
and it's starting to have an impact. We're um, out there and some of those ads will, in the very near future, include our commitment to uh, ensuring PFAS policy is implemented by the major parties through pressure. We'll develop our own policy. I'm in the process of doing that now. This is a federal election which is due by the 18th of May. But uh, our election campaign has already started. We have television ads on all television stations and Sky as well. Is this when your brother is running for the seat of Patterson? Yeah, my twin brother will run for the seat of Patterson. He'll be New South Wales coordinator for the party, developing um, election strategies and getting candidates and so on. So we're in full swing. We can only pressure the major parties by becoming a greater force and have greater representation in Parliament, and that's what we aim to do. The Williamtown public hearing that happened in July. didn't see you at that. I was wondering, did you know that it was on? Do you know if you're busy in Parliament? I was busy in Russia, as a matter of fact. I had a break and uh, visited um, Russia for uh, nearly four weeks. Okay, great. At that Williamtown public hearing, the Port Stephens local member Kate Washington and the federal member for Patterson, Meryl Swanson, they both made statements to the committee. If you had have been present, what do you think your statement would have been to the committee? I'd have probably put a question to the two um, state and uh, federal members, Washington and Swanson, uh, why hasn't their party a formal policy regarding uh, PFAS? With a election coming up in May at the latest, they should have one by now and uh, it should be fully costed and uh, the timeline for implementing that particular policy. I would have also reiterated my support for the community, uh, not only in Williamtown but Oakey and uh, Tyndall and, and other major areas around Australia, that I will continue the fight to uh, ensure that the affected residents and properties are properly compensated. Uh, even though I'm a New South Wales senator, I'm the sole um, representative of the United Australia Party, a lead um, Senate, uh, senator in uh, in the Senate and uh, that gives me a free reign to travel throughout Australia which I intend to do and I'll visit as many of these contaminated sites as possible. I understand that there are some big issues at Wagga right now, Wagga Wagga. The sewerage water treatment plant at Forest Hill which is contaminated with PFAS is affecting the sewerage water treatment plant and they've got 500 days to fix it and they're not allowed to let the effluent escape before that time. I met with the Mayor of Wagga in my office about six weeks ago, Greg Conkey, and I also visited him in Wagga late last year, and that's when he raised the issue of PFAS. It's a training facility down there on the ref base, and it surprised me that they were contaminated there as well. How concerned is he, Brian? He's very concerned, being a leader of his community, A spokesperson from the Wagga Wagga City Council said the council is awaiting the release of Defence's PFAS Management Area Plan, which will determine the activities Defence will undertake to manage and reduce the risks of PFAS exposure in the Forest Hill area. Council continues to follow the direction of Defence in relation to the PFAS issue. Defence's Human Health and Ecological Risk Assessment for the RAF Base Wagga PFAS Investigation Report released in November identifies that management measures in the Murrumbidgee River and Marshalls Creek are to be addressed by the appropriate New South Wales government agencies. And you can see more information about this on the Defence website. The spokesperson from the Wagga Wagga City Council also confirmed that the Mayor has met twice with Senator Brian Burston and that Defence held an information session in Wagga for the community early in November. And the assessment report is on their website. 
there's um, some angst. Uh, it's now starting to get traction in the media, of course, PFAS and its potential danger. I describe it as the next asbestos epidemic. Uh, the disappointing thing, though, is that uh, the recent report uh, put to the government was that it had no um, impacts on human health, which is a load of nonsense. Uh, I met with those researchers at Newcastle University, and they acknowledge that there is human health um, impacts by PFAS on the human um, body. Nick Buckley says otherwise to the industry that he said at the Eco Forum he maintained what the expert health panel findings were, the no consistent evidence, but also at the same time there's mixed messages because he said you certainly wouldn't drink this stuff and he also said we do know that there are definite biological responses mm-hmm. to this chemical. So it, it's a mixed message, Brian. Well, I think they should interview the 50 that have contracted cancer on Cabbage Tree Road, ask them their opinion. You can hear more about how PFAS chemicals affect health in episode 5 of Talking PFAS. I will say, Brian, I went to the Ecoforum conference and it was filled with contractors who work, do work for Defence mm-hmm. and none of them would come on this mic and tell me about the good things that they're doing in remediation work with PFAS. They have the expertise. The community need to know there is hope because what I've discovered is the community are not just concerned about their own situation, they are highly concerned about their own situation, but they're also concerned about the environmental impacts on the country. Mm. So they need to hear the good things that are happening in remediation. I brought up the problem of industry and regulators' reluctance to talk on mic to me at the PFAS Summit when a panel was discussing community trust. I'm going to play that question for you next and following my question you will hear ABC science journalist Robin Williams ask me a question and then you will hear a response from Mr Steve Grezkowiak, the Deputy Secretary of Estate and Infrastructure for Defence. Just to speak to community trust, I've been studying this for eight months and dealing with community and I've launched the podcast because there's voices in this room that need to be heard and they're not getting heard. So as far as community trust, they need the expertise that's in this room. I need the expertise in this room to do my job well as a journalist, but people don't want to talk. Did you ask them why they don't want to talk? A lot of them are working with Defence, so they can't talk to me. Where is he? (laughs) Defence has never told anybody not to talk about this subject. I would say to you, if you are an expert in any field and the journalists want to talk to you... um, Do not say defence has told you not to say anything. We do not do that, right? You will not learn state secrets working on PFAS for (laughs) defence. You will learn a lot about PFAS and you can talk um, openly about that. All of the work that we have done by the environmental consultants is all published on websites that are freely and publicly available. Thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. I am getting a bit fed up with hearing people say, I can't talk to you because I'm working with defence, right? I'm serious about this. I want you guys out there talking about the good things that are going on as well because the community don't trust me because I'm the bureaucratic bad guy from defence, right? But we are being as open with communities as it's possible to be. You know way more about what we're doing on PFAS than you do about SO at Longford or Melbourne Airport, apologies to the representatives from Melbourne Airport in the room, or a whole range of other commercial sites that have got exactly the same problem but just keep shut up about it. So we're out there, we discovered this problem for ourselves. we're trying to do something about it, you guys can all help. Remember, working together to try and solve a problem. 
if the professionals that are working on the PFAS remediation don't share their successes, it doesn't benefit the rest of the country, right? And others, industry that are going to have, that won't have the money to do the research that Defence has done. Mm. A lot of people treat this as commercial incompetence. They keep it close to their chest so that if it leaks out, then somebody else might take it up and um, if they've cashed up, take advantage of the research that others have already done. The interesting thing about my visit to Newcastle University on this hemp project was that they've taken out a worldwide patent so that the research they've done so far is protected. If they don't get further funding, I hate to think that all the work they've done so far falls over, but I'll be taking it up with Matisse Corman and the Finance Minister and um, the Treasurer and so on to ensure that we get additional funding. I had a meeting with Matthias Corman regarding the um, report that came out where it indicated there was no adverse impacts on human health expert health panel and Senator Cormann asked me should they put in the budget papers that there will be no consideration of buybacks I said well are you considering them he said no I said we'll put it in be honest with the community to their credit they did put that in. It was a double blow for the community to hear no health findings while neighbours are dying of cancer and Cabbage Tree Road and they're sick with other problems horses dying alpacas dying Mm. all of this is on the record you know, and then they're told no buybacks. It's a double whammy. It is. I suggested to Senator Cormann that if there's no human health impacts from PFAS, then why do we still have the red zone? Why are people told not to eat their fish or eggs or allow children to play in the, in the groundwater? It's a contradiction. Mm. So you can't have it both ways. You've got to be honest and not try and cover this up. If you look at the DPI... Uh, Department of Primary Industries, they've got several fact sheets about limiting consumption of fish in certain areas in New South Wales. They do, and in terms of cattle, they're suggesting that the um, owners of that cattle do not consume their own meat, yet they're allowed to sell it to to market on the basis that um, they consider that any whole cow will not be eaten fully by the one person, it'll be distributed across the country, uh, whereby those slaughtered uh, for the consumption of the people who um, raise the cattle, they likely consume all of it. So that's Mm. the the difference. They call it the dilution effect. I just heard that again mentioned at the conference and I've mentioned this in previous episodes, Mm. Brian. The official responses from DPI, and you're correct, there's no cattle tested in New South Wales for PFAS. Mm There's actually no international restrictions between trade partners on trading livestock from PFAS-contaminated areas. There's no restriction. And they also said that many of Australia's trading partners have their own PFAS issues. But this is a problem for food safety, surely. Oh, it is. I mean, they've even tested um, black bears in Alaska and found PFAS in them. So it's Alaska of all places, Mm. one of the most beautiful countries in the world, majority of its um, national park all but about 2 or 3% of it, and they're still finding PFAS contamination in their animals over there. It's, it's astounding. Mm. What concerned me, and I raise this with you only because I will be reporting on the Eco Forum. I've mentioned it a few times, but one of the experts got up and there was talk of normalisation. It was a little bit concerning. Oh, goodness, I'm not sure you can normalise um, with PFAS. Mm. I think that's an impossible ask. As introduced earlier in this episode, Andrew Mitchell works for RPS. He is also the Project Director for Defence PFAS Investigation and Management. Here is a little bit of what he had to say at the PFAS Summit held in Sydney in October, where he raises the term normalisation. 
of PFAS. So my work with defence has been very interesting and challenging the past couple of years. I must emphasise, um, thanks G for the, uh, Steve G for the, um, the freedom to speak. These thoughts today really are my own, my own thoughts. A lot of them from my 14 years or so with the EPA. So community, we need to acknowledge and understand the past in order to move forward. The, these are real people. We've heard from today the real anxieties, real fears. Their lives, in many cases, really have changed. Uh, many of the affected communities moved to the country to live off the land, and they've learned that on the advice of health professionals, you know, or EPAs, they shouldn't drink that water or, or, or butcher that animal or, um, or eat those eggs uh, anymore. Their, their lifestyles have changed. The health risk uncertainty, I think, adds to the, uh, the complex uh, issues there. So because it's in the community, because it's out there, most responses to PFAS are community-driven. But who is the community, really? I'd like to argue that we are the community. You know, it's just a luck, it's chance that it, we are not those people being affected by the contamination. It is really out there. It is in all of our blood uh, to varying levels. We've all become exposed in, in some ways. It's just that some people living near... I guess contaminated sites are more exposed than others. So noting that it won't always be possible to fully remediate PFAS. So a lot of PFAS is being removed and cleaned up, but a lot, of, a lot of the PFAS out there will never, ever go away. It will diminish in concentration. It will attenuate uh, through physical processes largely over time, but it won't go away. So I'd like to challenge you, is there such a thing as living with PFAS? What is a, a, toler a tolerable level of PFAS? What can policymakers do to help uh, communities acknowledge and understand and, and get on with their lives uh, in the context of PFAS. I would ask a question. The precautionary principle is underlying really everything that we're doing here. But what is a proportionate application of the precautionary principle? How can you be proportionate about being precautionary? How far do we go? How, how low do we go? If the guidelines keep on moving down, we probably need to take a step back and ask the question, what is society's willingness to pay for PFAS? compared to other contaminants, or, to com or compared to other matters in our society. Because if the guidelines keep on going down and down, it's going to get very, very expensive. And it's going to be difficult to tell the difference between a, a higher risk um, and a lower risk. What is a tolerable PFAS risk? Uh, working in PFAS uh, for a few years, um, I was working in the, a little bit on Williamtown at the EPA before I moved to Defence. You come across a range of People working on a range of issues. It seems that PFAS is still a little bit special, uh, still a little bit different. I would like to see a future world where there are no PFAS guys. There's just everyone, and PFAS is just normalised. It's just another contaminant. It's a little bit special in a few ways, but there's lots of problems. How do we, as a community of practice, shift towards a solutions focus? How do we shift to saying, yes, we've detected it, but that's okay. To be expected, it will be okay. How can we get to using the words like safe or acceptable in, in uh, meetings with the community? We're talking about a chemical that has been poured into the environment, released into the environment. Surely we can't just let it sit there. No, we can't. It's got to be remediated. It's got to be, something's got to be done. And if they can't remediate the ground quickly, they have to relocate people and pay for it. It's as simple as that. Science journalist and broadcaster Robin Williams was a special host at the PFAS Summit and also on the final day of the EcoForum conference, he read out an email which detailed some concerns that a delegate had following the PFAS summit. She said, when experts talk about normalising PFAS 
they may find themselves in hot water with community members. It sounds as if experts are trying to downplay the risks by the time-honored method of comparison with other risks. To my way of thinking, she says, the risk message was confused. On the one hand, we learn about PFAS' global fate and transport, as well as remediation technologies. And on the other, we're informed by health experts that PFAS issues are urgent, but not important. Does this mean that all the money being spent by countries around the planet on PFAS monitoring and abatement is a waste of time and money? If it is, try telling that to the local communities who have lost trust in experts and institutional authority. And I would like to add to that, they've lost their property value and their peace of mind. We're talking about psychological distress with these communities that can't be normalised. What do you think about this statement, Brian? Well, you can't normalise PFAS for a start. The community uh, members um, certainly have a right to be angry with such statements. Experts are playing off each other. Overseas research shows that PFAS is harmful and has an impact on human health. If this keeps up, you know, I'm going to start calling for a Royal Commission in this issue. It's a, a massive issue. If they keep passing the buck and not supporting the community as they should and remediate the land that they have contaminated, then a Royal Commission might be the answer. Uh, again, we need transparency, Brian. We need transparency. They've got to stop hiding. We have freedom of the press. A lot of people are critical of the press, but in situations like this, we need good experts in the media to uh, talk to other so-called experts to um, bring the truth out. This is a massive human interest story, not only in Australia but worldwide. Brian, it was lovely talking with you today about PFAS. Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think we've covered it pretty well. I appreciate your time and efforts in what you're doing for um, PFAS uh, victims and bringing this to the public note. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you very much. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. And this is the final episode for Season 1 of Talking PFAS. And I want to thank you for listening and also all of the wonderful feedback that I've been receiving from listeners. Thank you. And just finally, the Joint Standing Committee has released their report on their findings into the PFAS investigation that happened in July, August and September in Australia. During the break, I'll be putting up a bonus episode regarding the PFAS inquiry and the committee's response before the government gives their response early next year. I'm trying to find funding so that I can continue to bring you valuable and important information regarding PFAS. I do intend to be coming back for season two, where I will, depending on funding, be able to bring you as many voices as I can from residents in, around Australia that have been affected by PFAS. And I also will be bringing you the voices of firefighters who have reached out and contacted me about their concerns regarding PFAS. If you are interested in sponsoring the Talking PFAS podcast, please reach out to me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And you can also follow the Talking PFAS podcast Twitter stream at Talking PFAS. Once again, I want to thank you for listening, for sharing, and I will see you in the new year. Thank you. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.